The latter part of Amos is built around five visions that God gave to the prophet. Prior to chapter 7, it had been Amos coming and proclaiming to the people of God that they needed to repent. Through the first seven chapters, in a variety of ways, he reminds them that the sins that they are committing, the sins of injustice, where they are taking advantage of the poor, they are getting rich by treating those who are in poverty poorly. They are guilty of these things before God. He reminds them that the games they're playing with worship, where they come and they just go through the motions while ignoring the hurt and the pain of their fellow believers, is unacceptable to God. But in chapter 7, things take a little bit of a different turn. God begins to speak to Amos through five visions. The first vision is recorded in chapter 7. It's a vision of locusts that come into the area and they absolutely decimate the crops. Amos calls out to God, Lord, please don't do this. If you do this, we won't survive. God is gracious. And he relents. He says, that won't happen. Amos is given another vision of extreme drought. The drought is so severe that not only do the lakes and the rivers dry up, but the springs that feed the lakes and the rivers dries up. Once again, Amos calls out and he says, Lord, don't do this. We, we won't survive and God is gracious and he relents. But for the third, fourth, and fifth visions, there are no prayers of intercession. The Lord says these things will happen. The third vision is God standing beside a wall with a plumb line in his hand and it's clear that the wall is crooked. God is saying, I have asked you time and time again to repent, to follow me, to walk in my ways, but you won't. You refuse to straighten out, and so now there is no intercession of prayer, just the certainty of judgment. The fourth vision is recorded in chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies. They are thrown everywhere. Silence. The vision is in many ways odd. And in many ways quite disconcerting. This vision has one main point. God is saying the end is certain. He is saying my people have refused to repent. And now I must act with a sense of finality in bringing judgment upon them. The people of God have reached a point of no return. It's signified in a very odd way because in verse 1, Amos sees a basket of summer fruit. 
It's a basket that is overflowing with figs, which is the fruit that would have been harvested at the end of the summer. And then he makes the statement, the end has come upon my people Israel. God is hammering this point home to Amos by giving him a way, a a mnemonic tool to remember what's happening. Because in the Hebrew, the word for summer fruit and the word for end sound alike. And it's a way, I think, not only of helping Amos and us to remember the God's certainty of judgment when we refuse to repent. It is a way of saying that the summer fruit, this basket overflowing, represents the idea you have of this prosperity. All is well. We've got money in the bank, food on the table, life is easy and it is good. And God says you are being lulled to sleep. Because you are rejoicing in prosperity that has come about because of injustice built upon your fellow man. And God is not mocked. He says the end is here. And the words that God says are startling and heartbreaking. I will never again pass by them. In other words, I'm not going to spare them any longer. And he says that this end that I will bring upon the people is terrifying. Verse 3, the songs of the temple that were songs of joy and celebration, they become wailing. Songs of grief. The song of joy becomes a song of lament. And the verses are very short. They grab your attention. So many dead bodies. This this is horrifying. It's the harbinger of, of what's going to happen when Assyria, when God brings Assyria in to conquer Israel and death will follow in their wake. And he says the only response to this at the end of verse 3 is silence. What we are seeing here is the horrifying truth that the New Testament speaks of in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 10, the preacher says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Now keep in mind, the message of Amos was delivered to those who professed to be in a covenant relationship with God. It is easy to read these words of judgment and think that's for the people that don't believe. That's for everybody else. But we are reminded time and time again that God's judgment begins with his people because his people know the truth. That's what the preacher in Hebrews is saying. The Lord will judge his people. And then verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of Of the living God. This is no trivial matter. Now many are surprised when they think of the reality that God's patience has a limit. It's not the way we think of God. We think of God as being at our service. He's gracious, he's good, and he is. But what that means is we have time to deal with God. In other words, I want to live my life, and then at some point along the way, I'll deal with my sin. I'll deal with that. I'll get right with God. And many of us approach God like a young man that Professor D.A. Carson met in his studies. This young man, he lived and was from French West Africa. Lived in London, but was from West Africa. 
He and Carson were both taking a class to to learn German and they were working on it and they struck up a friendship. They would study together after class and and go, go out to eat when they got frustrated in studying German. As Carson got to know this man, he discovered that this man was doing some things that were very, very wrong, very immoral. At least once a week, this man would go to the seedier section of the city where they were studying and engage in gross sexual immorality. One day, Carson really confronted this man about this and said, What would you do if you found out your wife, who is back in London, was doing the same thing you're doing? The man smiled and he said, Well, I'd kill her. So that's a bit of a double standard, isn't it? That's not right. The man said, well, you don't understand. Where I come from, the husband has the right to to do what I'm doing. But if a wife is unfaithful to her husband, then she is to be killed. Carson pushed a little more. He said, but you told me you were raised in a mission. You went to a Christian school. You, You have told me you know the gospel. You know the Bible. And you know that the God of the Bible does not have double standards. The young man looked at Dr. Carson. And with a bright smile said these words. Ah, but God is good. He's bound to forgive us. That's his job. Yes, God is gracious. But we are not to presume upon his grace. God is patient, long-suffering, but we are not to presume upon that long-suffering. God is good, but we are not to presume upon His goodness. Because Scripture shows time and time again where there is a point of no return with God. No more opportunity to repent. When Noah was told to build the ark because God was going to destroy the world by flood, he set into the task... And for the next 120 years was working on building this boat. But according to 2 Peter, that wasn't the only thing that Noah was doing. In that same period, Noah was preaching righteousness. In other words, Noah is preaching to the people, return unto God. But there is no record of any repentance. So the time came when God closed the door. The skies yelled in a thunder. And the deeps gave up their water and the earth was destroyed. God told Abraham that he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Their unrighteousness had reached a point where God would no longer tolerate it. Abraham remembers that his nephew Lot is living there. So he begins to negotiate with God. Lord, what if we could find 50 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah? Would you destroy it? And God says, no, you find 50, I won't destroy it. Now Abraham begins to second guess himself here. Okay, God, what about 40? What if we find 40? I won't destroy it for 40. Abraham doubts himself. He knows Sodom and Gomorrah. Lord, what about 30? God says, I won't destroy it for 30. They get down to 10. God says, even I've got my quotas. That's it. No more. And what happened? No repentance. Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed. To the northern kingdom of Israel, the people to whom Amos is preaching, they refuse to repent and Assyria comes in and destroys them. The southern kingdom of Judah is taken by Babylon. And 2 Chronicles chapter 36 tells us why. 
But they, that's the people of God, kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. God's grace reached a limit. His patience was at an end. Now this does not mean that God's steadfast love had come to an end. It's because he loved his people that he did this because the path they were on was leading them further and further away from him. We must never play the attributes of God against one another as if to say, well, God is loving so he can't be just. God is, is gracious so he can't be holy. The attributes of God all work together. He never plays one against the other. Well, you may say, but that's the Old Testament. Surely in the New Testament we see something change. But the same pattern is in the New Testament. On the screen you'll see John chapter 12 verse 35. Jesus is speaking to the leaders of Israel. And he says, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. Notice the while. While the light is here, walk in it. That has the implication that when the light is gone... it while the light is among you respond the one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going while the light is here act revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 jesus is seen among the churches in fact in chapter 1 jesus is described as walking among the lampstands the lampstands represent his churches jesus is present among them in the holy spirit and he warns ephesus Repent, or I will remove your lampstand. This is not Jesus saying you will lose your salvation. He is talking to the people of God at Ephesus saying, Repent of your sins, or your light will no longer shine in this city. The church will not be effective. It will become lifeless. It will become something that God did not intend it to be because of your sin. Now understand, God is not unfair. He is patient. But His patience is meant to bring us to repentance. That is why, as God is patient, He points out the sin. In His love, He says, this is the area in which you are rebelling against Me. He does that again. After this vision, in verses 4 through 10, He goes through the litany again of the sin that Israel is committing. Verses 4 I'm sorry, in verse 4 and verse 6, he speaks about their treatment of those who are stuck in poverty. He says, you trample on them. You bring the, the poor of the land to an end. In verse 6, we buy the poor for silver. They were getting rich by treating those who were poor unfairly, by refusing to pay them a wage that they deserved, by looking for ways to exploit them, even to the point in verse 6 where they engaged in human trafficking. You don't pay me what you owe me. I will sell you. And notice the cheap value they placed on a life. Verse 5, God says, I'm judging you because you are playing games about worship. You're sitting in, in worship. You're, you're celebrating the Sabbath. And all the while, you're thinking, when will this be over so I can get back to making money? I've stopped what I'm doing. Let me get back at it. Let me, let me get back to my business. And God finally says, enough. He says that a final famine will come upon the land. Not a famine of food. Not a famine of water. But a famine in verse 11. 
of hearing the words of the Lord. Behold, verse 11 says, The days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but a hearing, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Now keep in mind, God is talking to his people. And he's telling them, because you have not repented, you are not going to hear from me. Now how does that apply to us today? What does that mean? Is this something we just look at as Old Testament? Or do we read this and hear a warning for the church in the world today, the church in America? Do we hear a warning that if we don't keep seeking God, if we don't have short accounts with God where we repent, could we experience a famine? Let's start with what is meant by the word of the Lord. By hearing the words of the Lord. The word of the Lord refers to God's revelation of himself. It is God taking the initiative for us to know Him. Now, don't take that for granted. God is higher than we are. God is is beyond us. And unless God takes the initiative to reveal Himself to us, you and I will not know God. That's how great and majestic and magnificent God is. He takes the initiative. So the word of the Lord is the way in which we come to know who God is. The word of the Lord is connected to the proclamation of the word of the Lord or the proclamation of the prophets in the Old Testament. Up on the screen you'll see 1 Samuel 3.21. The Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh. How did God reveal himself? By the word of the Lord. So there is some aspect here in the Old Testament where the prophet speaks and God reveals himself through the words of that prophet. But the word of the Lord also referred to the actions of God because God is so powerful. Guess what happens when God speaks? Whatever he says. He speaks and the world comes to be. God's words carry with them an active creative force. So the acts of God reveal who God is. The proclamation done by the prophets reveal who God is. But ultimately, the word of God is incarnate in Jesus Christ. So Jesus says, if you see me, you see God. What I do is what God is doing. And what I say is what God says. The perfect word of God is found in Jesus Christ. But here's the question. How do you and I today know the acts of God? How do we know what God has done? Is it not the scripture? How do we know what the prophets have said? Is it not the scripture? How do you and I come to know who Jesus is? Is it not the scripture? So we cannot speak of knowing God without coming to the scripture. For the scripture is the word of God in which we come to understand who God is, what he has done, and the gracious nature of his character found in Jesus Christ. So when we start to deal with the word of God, we are dealing with the scripture. Because the scripture tells us who he is. Now, the question then comes, well, how could there be a famine today? I mean, I understand that in the Old Testament, there were prophets. The prophets spoke the word of God. There weren't copies of the Torah in every home. They just didn't have that. So if God says there's going to be a famine, it means the prophets won't preach. And indeed... Between the Testaments, there was 400 years of silence. 
What does that look like today? I mean, after all, most of us have more than one Bible in our homes. If there's a famine of hearing the Word of God today, does that mean the Bibles disappear? We've got plenty of preachers. I say that because I is one. No shortage of people willing to stand and speak and to speak about God. My goodness, you go to a bookstore and there are rows upon rows upon rows of devotional books and theology books. Things explaining the word of God. So how in the world could there be a famine of hearing the word of God today? There can be. Even with the glut of Bibles and books, even with this flood of preachers, there can be a, a famine of hearing the word of God because you and I are still dependent upon the spirit of God to feed our souls. You see, just picking up the Bible and reading it doesn't necessarily mean your soul is being fed. Non-believers can pick up the Bible and read it. You can read atheists who quite frankly know the words of Scripture better than many believers. So why does that Scripture not give them life? It's not that the Scripture is failing in any way, but it is the Spirit of God that has to work in illuminating our eyes and our hearts to grasp that. There are people who stand, men who stand in the pulpit and their sermons are empty of scripture and empty of power. They are like pianos that have had the strings removed. Oh, you can push the keys, but there's no sound because the spirit is absent. Now, the reason I say there is a connection between the spirit of God and the application and the hunger, the desire for the word in our lives is from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. Paul prays and he prays for the church at Ephesus by saying, having the eyes of your hearts, what? Enlightened illuminated that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? We need that unction of the Spirit to move in our lives to see the glory of God, to have the truth illuminated so that we feast upon the Word of God. We need that help. In the book of Acts chapter 8, Philip is told by an angel to leave Jerusalem and to go to the road that leads from Jerusalem to Gaza. He goes and he obeys and soon he sees a chariot coming. And the chariot is, is, has within it, it is carrying a eunuch from Ethiopia. The chariot stops. Philip gets on. The Ethiopian eunuch is reading a scroll. And so Philip says, what are you reading? I'm reading Isaiah 53. And he quotes it. Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? The Ethiopian eunuch says, how can I unless somebody explains it? Now he was not an ignorant man. He could figure out the words. He could see the sentence structure. But he recognized there was something there that unless someone explained exactly what it was meaning, that it would be pointless to him. That is the role of the Spirit of God. That as we open the Bibles and read them, it is the Spirit of God that moves to apply them to our lives. So what does the famine of the Word of God look like today? I want to give you three descriptions, I think, to hold up to ask ourselves, are we living in a famine of hearing the word. First is this. Is the scripture valued among the people of God? Do we value the Bible? Now I'm not meaning do we own it. Do we value it by reading it? 
by hungering for it? Do we value it by saying, Lord, this is your word. Speak to me because, Lord, if you don't speak to me, my soul is going to shrivel and die. Lord, speak to me from your word because your word is truth. Do we value what we have in this that it is the words of life? I am put to shame, quite frankly, when I read and hear of narratives taking place around the world of how Christians hunger for the Word of God. David Platt, former pastor in Birmingham and recently stepped down from leadership of the International Mission Board, I remember hearing him tell of a time that he was in Southwest Asia. And in a very much cloak and dagger moment, he was snuck across the border into a country where the church is outlawed. I mean, cloak and dagger stuff. He said he was told to wear a dark hoodie. He met a truck, a cattle truck. Got in the back of the cattle truck, hid behind cattle as they got him into the country. And he goes into this room, and when he arrives, the room is empty. It's just him and his guide, and they wait. And slowly, two by two, three by three, people begin to arrive over a period of two to three hours. Now, he said this is a room, small, cramped. One light bulb hanging in the middle. And they, by the time they get ready to start, are shoulder to shoulder with each other. And he says, so they wanted me just to teach. So you know where I started? Genesis. And he said, for an hour, I go just chapter by chapter. And I get to around Genesis 12. We've been at it for an hour. So I say, let's take a break. And their response is, why? Keep going. Okay, Genesis 13. For the next hour, he keeps going, scripture by script, verse by verse, through it. After another hour, same thing. Keep going. He said for about seven hours, they're in this small room with him just teaching the word of God. They did not want to leave. It was life to them. Do we value the word of God? To read it. To hold it dear. Not to worship the word. Because the word points us to God. That's why the scripture is important. Because I know that without it. I will not know God. I cannot figure out God on my own. And if I want to know him. And I want to know Jesus. I must get into the word. So that I can worship God truthfully. And, and passionately. And know who he is. Second thing I would ask is this. Do we see the spirit at work. Applying the word with power. Do we see the Spirit at work in our congregation and in our lives applying the Word? We are dependent upon the Spirit. I pray frequently, Psalm 119, where it says, Lord, incline my heart toward your testimonies. Now, I'm not talking about those times. We all have them. Times where we come into the Word and it's dry. Now, shame the devil and tell the truth. I have those moments. Well, you come to the Word and it's like, Lord, I'm reading this, but my heart, something's wrong. Lord, incline my heart to your testimonies. But do you balance that out with other times where you read the Word and to quote the words of John Wesley, you find your heart strangely warmed? Where you read the Word and it's, it's the Lord. He's talking to you. And you say, Lord, this is feeding my soul. Let me just grab this. And, and Lord, let it just settle in my heart and my mind. And you get a little foretaste of glory divine as you're in the Word. Do you have those times also? See, when I speak of the fact that we don't experience the Spirit enlightening us and empowering us by the Word, 
I'm asking you to look at your life consistently. To know that the Spirit of God is at work to lead us not just to know the Word, but to say, Lord, let me apply it and live it and hunger for it. The third thing I would ask us to consider to know if we are in a famine of hearing the Word is this. Is there a lack of preaching that gives preeminence to the Scripture? Is there a lack of preaching that does not uphold the Word of God, the Scripture? I hope you know here at Trinity, we place an extremely high value on expository preaching and teaching. Apart from really the scripture and doing my best to explain it, I don't have much to say. Now, some of you are laughing at that inside as you've sat through sermon after sermon. But that's the reality. We must take a look at the churches we hear on TV, listen to on the radio. What role does the scripture play? Or is this just some psychological babble wrapped with spiritual sounding words that just feeds our egos while denying the truth in the heart of the matter? Now, this is crucial stuff. It's crucial because Amos 8 verses 12 through 14 tell us what will happen when there is a famine in the word, of the word in the land. So if those are the characteristics, here's what happens. The first is this. The people of God will hunger for God. In other words, they'll, they'll feel something's lacking and they'll want that. But they won't be able to feel that hunger. Look at verse 12. They, that's the people of God who are now under a famine of hearing the word of the Lord. They wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they won't find it. In other words, they're hungering for it. By the lack of it being proclaimed and preached and taught, they realize it's missing. It falls under the category, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. And now they say, I've got to find that. I've got to get that. There's a memory of something that they want, but they can't get anymore. One of my favorite hymns. It was written by Robert Robinson, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Love that hymn. Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, tune my heart to sing Thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. This next two lines we have on a, a, a picture in Emma's room. Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it. Mount of Thy redeeming love. But I've always been drawn to the third verse. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. There's been a lot of debate about Robert Robinson, the man who wrote that. We know in the path of his life that he converted from Methodism to being a Baptist. And then later in his life he began to flirt and some say converted outright to Unitarianism. The belief that Jesus is not divine, is not God. It's uncertain. There's a story that, story that circulates that later in his life he was riding on a stagecoach. And there was a woman that was seated in that very coach who was reading from a book. And she was visibly moved by what she was reading. She handed it to him and said, sir, read this. I would love to know more about this. And he read the words I just quoted to you. 
He handed the book back to her as the legend goes and says, Ma'am, I am the poor, unhappy soul that wrote those words. And I wish more than anything I could get that back again. I could get back what I had but was lost. So we must ask ourselves the question, are we hungering for something and not feeling what will satisfy it? That is a mark that there is a famine of hearing the word of the Lord. Second mark is found in verse 13. In that day the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Spiritual vitality will be lacking. This is a picture of those who are young, strong, Virile. And what is happening is now that they are fainting. There's no strength in them. I believe this is a description metaphorically of their state spiritually. They should be at the high point of life enjoying all that God has promised. But they're not because there's a famine of the word in the land. And now they are wondering where is spiritual life. Remember this. The word of God. When God reveals himself it gives life. It sustains life. It is joy. It is what moves us and powers us through. In the song that Nathan sang, that reminder that in trials, you cling to the word of God. I will not trust what my eyes can see. I will stand upon the promises of God. And if the word of God is removed and the spirit of God is not working, there will be a lack of vitality and spiritual power within a congregation. Life will begin to ebb from the body of Christ. We'll become like this horrible picture that Max Lucado describes of what happened in China in 1976 when Mao Zedong passed away. The Politburo ordered that Emperor, or not Emperor, but Chairperson Zedong's body was to be permanently embalmed and permanently displayed. The chief of positions began to, to disagree with him saying, you can't do that. There's no way you can permanently keep a body on display. You cannot stop decay. But the Politburo would not listen, and so he followed his orders. Twenty-two liters of formaldehyde were pumped into this body. The results were horrifying. It swelled up. The ears stuck out at 90-degree angles. Chemicals oozed from the pores. That sufficed for the funeral. But then they made the decision. They wanted this body preserved and put on display permanently in Tiananmen Square. Once again, the doctor said no, but he had his orders. And after they began to see the futility of their efforts, they ordered that a wax figure was to be placed so people could see the chairman in all of his glory. The physician is recorded as saying, after a while, you didn't know what was real and what wasn't. Was it his actual body or the wax figure? Where are we today? Where's the church in America? Where is Trinity? Are we just a shell of what God can do? Have we lost the vision of what we can be? Of the power of God's word and the power of the spirit to transform a people, to transform the world. Not by any program, but by the power of God's word preached and the spirit of God bringing life and vitality. It's true. You know what one of the marks of lacking spiritual vitality is? Is people ignoring Christians ignoring what God's word says. Up on the screen you'll see Proverbs 29, 18. Where there's no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. But blessed is he who keeps the law. When there is a famine of hearing God's word, he is saying here, the people will do whatever they want to do. 
There will be no difference between the person who professes to follow Christ and the person who is not following Christ at all. There will be no difference in their lives because where there is no vision, people cast off restraint. Is there spiritual vitality? The third mark that we are under a famine of hearing the word of God is in verse 14. It's hopelessness. Hopelessness will set in upon a people when there is a famine of hearing the word of God. Verse 14, Amos says, Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria, the guilt of Samaria was their idolatry, and say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, all those are references to idolatry. They shall fall and never rise again. When the word of God is absent, and the word of God gives life, people will begin to seek for life someplace else. I think what a picture is here is they're not hearing from God, so they begin to seek life in their idols. And guess what? The idols are revealed to be powerless. They can't feed them what they long for. And so there's a sense of hopelessness that comes in that says, Lord, our souls are hungry for something, but we can't find it. J.R. Vassar is a preacher and an author, and he describes it by an experience that he had in Myanmar once upon a time. He'd gone to a temple, a temple dedicated to Buddha. And he said, in this temple, on one side of it, there was a large golden Buddha, and there were people, obviously very poor people, that were coming, and they were praying, seeking enlightenment, and they were putting what little money they had in the boxes. And he looks over to the other side, and there's a Buddha, but this Buddha has scaffolding around it. And they're working to repair it. It's broken. And he said it hit him. Here's a broken people bowing down to a broken Buddha, asking that broken Buddha to fix their broken lives while someone else is fixing the broken Buddha. And then it dawned on him, we're no different. We are a glory-deficient people looking to other glory-deficient people to supply us with glory. It's a fool's errand. It's futile to look anywhere else other than to God for what our souls hunger for. But does this famine have to be fatal? And the answer, I think, is no. It is recorded here so you and I can learn from it. So you and I don't have to go down this path. So that if we recognize, Lord, there's a power missing in my life. There's a lack of vitality that today can be the day where that changes. Where you can cry out based upon the psalm, Lord, Lord, incline my heart towards your testimonies. Lord, give me life. There is nothing wrong with praying. Lord, help me to know you better. Give me a hunger to know you. That's a very honorable prayer. Famine doesn't have to be final. Turn to him today. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me right now.